Hey guys, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is David Dorner, and I am the teaching pastor here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it is so good to be with you. Our mission in this world is to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus for a lifetime or if your journey's just begun, we hope that this message will speak powerfully to your heart, that it will reveal something that God desires to cultivate in your life, and that you'll be drawn to the person of Jesus as a result. We hope these next few moments encourage you, challenge you, and inspire you to be who God has created you to be. We hope you enjoy it. So good to be with you this morning. Welcome if you have first time here or if you've been coming for a few times. My name is Blake. Uh, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here as well. And uh, I got some good news and I got some bad news and then I got some more good news. So first the good news. Uh, the good news is I'm not preaching. Okay, so... I know some of you looked as I was walking up here and going, not again. But, you know, hey, once was enough for, for a little while, uh, few weeks ago. But uh, anyway, so that's the good news. Bad news is, is Brian and uh, David, our usual communicators, are not preaching either. So great communicators they are, but they're both off this week. Uh, so, but I've got more good news. Good news is, is we've got Dr. Jeremy Grinnell with us this morning. So, so excited for him. Uh, if you don't know Jeremy, Jeremy's been a longtime friend. Uh, Frontline's been helping out over the years, and we're just so glad that you're here, Jeremy. Thank you again for just blessing us this morning. Uh, Dr. Grinnell actually has a new book coming out next year. Uh, it's called Bellowing of Cain. Uh, and that book highlights, what it does is it, it walks through loss in his life and then redemption. It follows the story, actually, of the Bible, of where there is great sin, there's forgiveness, and then there's redemption. And so that book's coming out uh, again next year. It's called Bellowing of Cain. And if you want to join along in that journey, the publishing journey, uh, the website is up there. It's bellowingofcain.com. But if you could help me welcome Jeremy this morning to a frontline. So let's give him a great frontline welcome. Thank you. It is my pleasure to be back with you again. Happy to be the uh, utility infielder as needed, okay? And uh, we'll see if you still feel that way at the end. Um, I want to be begin this morning by telling you a, a, what will feel like a very irrelevant story. It was to me at the time. Earlier this uh, summer, our family, we have four children, decided it was time to, to put in a swimming pool. And um, I made the mistake of deciding to do it myself. And uh, that's three weeks of my life I'd, I'd like back um, because I'm cheap. Um, I'm, but I'm actually a pretty handy guy, all things stated. I changed the brakes on my car. Uh, I learned how to do enough plumbing and electrical to do the rough and final plumbing and electrical for my in-law's house. And after multiple inspections, it's still standing. Um, I learned through YouTube, inter YouTube videos how to butcher my own chickens, which... I don't like, but have done, and even eaten, and I'm, haven't died. So I thought I can learn anything. I mean, I can, I can do this. About halfway through the second week, sunburn, having put the liner in three times, et cetera, et cetera, I, I, I reached the conclusion that this was actually the worst thing I've ever done, uh, primarily because all the skills that I was learning are useless. How many swimming pools am I going to put in in my lifetime? Right? Well, one. 
I needed all the experience, I needed all the things I was learning, I needed all the tricks, all the crafts, when? Before I started the project, that's when I needed it, but the only way to get them was by doing it, so by the time I'd mastered the activity, I'll never need it again. What a complete waste. And just about that time I get an email from Pastor Brian saying, would you come and speak at front? I'm like, sure, happy to, whatever, what, you know, what do you, they usually slot me into whatever they're doing, or, uh, and he said, well, we're doing a series on parenting. And I thought, oh, that's, that's exactly the same. Everything I needed to know, all the experiences that were necessary to actually parent my four kids, I needed at the beginning. I'm learning them now as I go along. For what purpose? I'm not going to raise another family, Lord willing. It's as useless as putting in a swimming pool. I needed all the skills back then. What's the point of trying to build the airplane in flight? So that honestly is why I'm the last person to be, to be preaching this sermon. You need someone much older, someone who survived the high school years and the college years and the young adult years and the move back into the basement years. That's what you need. In fact, when I was a pastor many years ago, when I was a pastor, I actually avoided topics like this. Let me just talk about the Bible. I'll tell you what the Bible says. Don't ask me that because I have no wisdom to give. I've got nothing to say. Well, so just use the Bible then. That's the problem. The dirty little secret, the Bible doesn't actually give a lot of practical parenting advice either. It's just not that kind of book. Ancient cultures, along with most cultures in history, just didn't think about children like we do. They didn't. The need to raise them right is these little packages of moldable potential that have to be brought. No culture in the world, pre-Edwardian England and its children's stories, thought that way. I think it just goes back to the turn of the 20th century in those old English stories. That's what turned children from sort of Darwinian objects that survived or didn't to these little bundles that we have to care for and have those responsibilities for. So it's new in the history of the world that we think of children the way we do. I mean, the closest advice, truly, you know, like pithy advice we get in the Bible on parenting are things like, you know, coming from the Apostle Paul, who had no kids, by the way, saying things like, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, which admittedly is a very low bar. And when my children tell me for sure that I violate at least once a week. Now, the, the truth is I said all of that to actually encourage you this morning if you're anywhere in the parenting cycle because God of all persons surely knows something about dealing with children who want to go their own way. And when you put it that way, surely God, of all persons, knows better than any of us how costly it is to bring children to maturity. Consequently, God must know how useless it would have been to give us a book full of cheap maxims and advice. What God actually gives us are stories of real families. 
As if to say, and, and I think I grow to mean this more every day, so long, as if to say to you, look, just, just so long as you don't screw your kids up as bad as these people, hang on, you're doing fine. Just as long as they survive and they don't look like this when they're done, you're doing great. That's what we actually meet this morning is a really really messed up family. And I hope you're encouraged by the fact that if you're not this, you're going to make it. It's a set of what might be called lawnmower parents. I had never heard the term before Pastor Brian gave it to me. Perhaps you don't know I either. Uh, you're probably familiar with helicopter parents. We know that one, the one who hovers over the child as they move through life, right? Well, the, the lawnmower parent, I, I guess, is what the helicopter parent devolves into when they descend, right? They're not content to hover. The lawnmower parent descends in an attempt to mow down all opposition before their little darling success in the world. They pave the way, go out moving all the barriers, all raising all the obstacles, that lie, cheat, steal, scheme if necessary to give their little darlings all the advantages so they won't have to face any crises in life and thereby rob them of the opportunity to build any character or resiliency. Good parenting. What family is this, you ask? Well, they're found in the book of Genesis 27. We're in the patriarchs. And honestly, what I'm going to do is just read through the story, making some comments for you as we go, sometimes snarkily, before I attempt to say something wise at the end. God help me. We meet this family in Genesis 27, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak he could no longer see, so that sets our, stair, stair, our, our, our setting, right? You have Abraham, the one through whom all the earth would be blessed, receive the promises of God. It's now his son Isaac, the next generation. Now he's old, blind, and toothless. He calls his oldest son Esau, and he says to him, my son, here am I, he answers. Isaac says, I am now an old man, and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver, your bow, and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, a lot has been written about this idea of the blessing, and certainly it contains a small part of what we think of when we think of blessing, like when you sneeze and I say, God bless you. I'm, I'm wishing you well, go, prosper, you know, live long life, that sort of thing. But there's a lot more in this culture. The blessing actually is wrapped up also in the transfer of family wealth and inheritance. The blessing from the father traditionally falls to the oldest, the oldest son, really, in, in the Semitic cultures, falls to the oldest son who will be the next patriarch of the family. And it involved all, involves all kinds of things, the subordination of other family members, Executive authority over the family's industry and businesses. It makes that person the religious head of the family. It's the sort of thing that obviously can only be given to a single person. So the blessing is a real significant thing. So, so far in this story, there's really nothing to see. Keep moving. This is a story that unfolded thousands of times. Esau, the oldest boy, the oldest of the two boys, Esau and uh, Jacob. And it's, about, it's all going to go according to plan. Esau's going to get the blessing. This is how it should, should go. Normal, everyday family life. And now, enter the crazy. Verse 5. Now, Rebekah, 
It's Isaac's wife. Uh, was listening to Isaac. Um, Rebecca was listening to Isaac speaking to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt the game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob. Let's pause there a second. Notice, you've already got warning signs in this family, right? Now, because we're, we're not talking about a blended family here. This isn't like a his, his son and her son and like literal son. No, no, no. They've just got favorites. Esau, the favorite of the father. Jacob, the, the favorite of the mother. Yeah, it's that simple and that bad. She says to him, look. Always a dangerous way to start a sentence. Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Warning number two, don't think, don't respond. Just do what I say. It's for your own good. Trust me. Go out to the flock, Jacob. Bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. You see what I mean? If you succeed in not screwing up your children that badly, good for you. Hang on. You're doing all right. You're going to make it. In fact, you wonder what has already gone wrong in this family for this kind of soap opera-esque plotting to occur. I mean, really, it's like, it is like something out of a daytime drama, as the stomach churns. Join us next week. But see, here's the thing in the story that you don't know yet. In earlier chapters, God had already spoken to Isaac and Rebekah. God had already said that it was Jacob, the younger, who was supposed to inherit the lead position in the family. Jacob, breaking with tradition, was supposed to be the one who has received the blessing from Isaac, from Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was, I, it was Jacob's line that was supposed to do it. And yet, here is Isaac Running ahead with the traditional motive here, pushing his lawnmower, choppity, 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 making way for his favorite son, Esau. Not to be outdone, right behind him is Rebecca saying, oh, no, you don't, and revving up her cub cadet to mow down the eldest for the sake of her favorite, Jacob. You actually wonder if either of them were, were really listening when God said to them, you know what, by the way, I've got this. I'm going to sort out the intergenerational transfer, so you guys just relax. Have some peace in your old age. No, 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 not for them. No, they've decided to play chess with their progeny, like it's the next chapter of a, of a Frank Herbert novel. Dune, the Semitic chapter. Now, of course, their children are not going to want any part of this, right? Who does? I mean, children run from their parents' drama, right? I mean, you, didn't you? I want no part of that business. Unless, of course, the kids are already as broken as the parents. Jacob's response, verse 11. Jacob says to his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man. While I am smooth of skin, what if my father touches me? It would appear, I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Oh, thank you, Jacob, man of scruples. He isn't worried about the deed itself. He's just worried about getting caught. In fact, in fact, do you hear him? 
Do you hear the self-deception involved in Jacob's words? Like, well, my father, to my father, it would appear that I'm tricking. No, no, Jacob, this is what tricking actually looks like. This isn't an appearance. You are actually tricking your father. At least have the courage to own it. Sin boldly, said, what's the guy's name? Bunyan, amazing grace. No, verse 13, his mother says to him, my son, my son, it's okay, let the curse fall on me, as if it could. Just do what I say. There it is again. Go and get them for me. So he go, he toddles off, he gets them and brings them to his mother. She prepares some tasty food, just the way his father likes it. Then Rebekah took his, the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands with the smooth part of his, and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skin to make it hairy. She then handed to her son Jacob the tasty food, patted him on the bottom, and sent him off. That was my editorial. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Pregnant pause. Isaac asked his son, How did you find the game so quickly? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. This is a key moment in the story. Because you recognize in this moment the failure of faith to be sticky. The failure of faith to be passed on to the next generation. The Lord, your God, Dad, your God provided it. So if the biblical patriarchs themselves had trouble getting their children to embrace the creator God of heaven and earth, again, be of good cheer. You're in good company. Just a, just a foreshadow of what we're going to say later to begin to recognize already in this story as Isaac and Rebekah seem to not understand that children are not blocks of wood that you can move around and expect them to stay in place. They're a complex of their own fears and agendas. They're free agents who make choices as well. And you can mow down all the competition you want. It doesn't mean they're going to stay in the short grass. Kids have a thing for the weeds, just like their parents. Verse 21, then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. I mean, just the, these the, red, the red lights are just danger, Will Robinson. They're going off all over. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, well, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Remember the goatskin? And so he did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's. So he proceeded to bless him. Come here, my son, kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. And then he offers him this long blessing. I'm not going to bother to read it, except to recognize the, la the next to the last line. May the sons of your mother bow down to you. 
May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you. But here, there's the subordination of Esau now. Esau has now become second place in the family. His position transferred to the younger Isaac. Well, we, can, we don't even need to read the next section of the text together because you've read enough stories, you've seen enough daytime drama to know how the next chapter's going to go. It's like any sitcom anywhere. The moment Jacob slinks away the deed done, who shows up? Esau! In he walks with his, with his bowl of pottage, and the whole thing comes out. And in one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture, we are told, and I quote, Esau held a grudge against Jacob. Do you think? But more, Esau thought in his heart, my father's about to die. Once he's gone, I'm going to take care of Jacob. I'm going to kill him. Verse 42, Rebekah hears of it, sends for her younger son Jacob and says to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, what? What comes next? Do as I say. There it is, third time. Don't question, don't think. It's for your own good. Trust me, just do it. Flee at once to your uncle's house in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. And when your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, honestly, I've got to stop right at this point and just say, Rebecca strikes me as a person of very low emotional intelligence. When your brother forgets the fact that you chiseled him out of the inheritance, when he comes back around and forgets that, who does she think? Her son? Does she know Esau so little, her own son, to think that this is going to pass? Does she think so little of Esau? Go, I'll send word for you to come back there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? A statement which has, which has always mystified me. Jacob, I understand she would lose Jacob because Esau would kill him. But lose Esau too? Maybe this is a recognition that she understands she already has. What is Esau to her? Nothing. If she kills Jacob, she might as well be sonless. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, she goes back to Isaac, I am disgusted with living, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the, the women of this land, from the Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. And mom is done. Close of chapter. What? Well, here's the thing. Esau had married a Hittite woman. Woman. And it had brought infinite grief to Rebecca. Honestly, I, I, don't, I don't know any Hittite women. I've never met them. I don't know that they're horrible people, but they, they appear to be, according to Rebecca. She is still manipulating things in an attempt to spare her child from being accountable. So she's going to send him away to her uncle's, you know, to her, to, you know, to her brother's place, away, 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 but to cover the tracks. Clearly, this is what this means in the context. To cover his tracks, she goes to Isaac with this cock and bull story about him, Hittite women. Again, I don't know whether this is true or false, but the context makes it clear she's seeking a different pretext to explain Jacob's running away. She doesn't want him to go under the label thief running for his life. No, no mother would want that for her child. No, she's got to mow more turf. So she goes to Isaac and comes up with this other story. I want him to go marry one of the good, clean girls from back home. Not one of these filthy ones here in the land. So you send him. So he could go with his father's additional blessing. She's still mowing. 
still mowing. Heaven forfend that Jacob should have to face the consequences of his actions. Heaven forfend he should learn a little character or humility. She insulates him from every virtue in the name of parental love. Now, of course, the story goes on. But that's the end of today's passage. But to make the correct point here, the singular point, I, I, want, to, I want you to get and no other, I'm going to have to tell you just a touch more about how this story plays out. Because, yes, Jacob did run. And God did find him. Found him sleeping as an outcast on the ground. And Jacob did come to faith in his father's God. You sang it this morning. O oh God of who? Jacob. But I want you to realize this. Jacob came to faith in this God not because of his parents. In fact, God did it despite them. <laughs> Excuse me. And many years later when both Esau... And Jacob were old and rich. They did meet again, and they did, in fact, reconcile. But again, not because of their parents. God did it, and did it in spite of them. And here I think we come to the basic mistake of the lawnmower parent, the core lie which we tell ourselves that if I don't do this for my kid, if I don't make this happen, then God only knows what will become of them. Honestly, my friends, you can insert any relationship you want there for the word kid. Spouse, aging parent, neighbor, friend, roommate. You can put any relationship you want in that blank. It will still be true. I want you to hear this morning the fear in that statement. I want you to hear the need for control that it expresses. The subtle belief that my kids really aren't moral agents of their own, people who must make choices, live with consequences, and thereby learn virtue, but rather they are merely blocks of wood who need me to put them where they're supposed to be with the assumption that they're going to stay there. Now, of course, in our saner moments, we know that this is a pack of lies. Kids do not stay where they are put. They push back, they make choices, they make messes. It's almost as if they were real, genuine, accountable people all their own. In fact, the only true thing about that statement are the words, God only knows. For God does know what will become of them. So please realize today that for all your understandable angst about your kids, their choices, their futures, an angst I share that the love that generates that angst is as corruptible as any other part of your humanity. Parental love can be corrupted as much as any other kind. There is nothing inherently holy or inherently righteous about parental love. Feeling it strongly does not make it true or right. Left to itself, it is as likely to smother and destroy as it is to nurture and cause to thrive. C.S. Lewis wrote The Great Divorce, the story, this vision of traffic between heaven and hell, which in my 
in, in moments I still think is one of the, the most remarkable things he ever wrote. And in there, the protagonist who watches these people go back and forth is told by another person. He the, asks the question, how many mothers have you known down there in the great town, down in hell? How many mothers have you seen who have their sons with them and would demand to have their children with them in hell out of maternal love? while calling it the highest and holiest human emotion. My friends, it is a lie. No love is high or holy unless it is willing to submit to God. There is nothing particularly human or particularly holy about protecting your kids. That's a quality we share with chickens. But we're not raising chickens. We're raising children of God. And only when your love for your kids is given back to God can it be made a holy thing. Can I be blunt with you this morning? Don't answer that because I'm going to be blunt with you this morning. It was rhetorical. You are not raising your children. You think about this way for yourself at times, don't you? Just as you belong not to yourself but to someone else. We talk this way. We know Paul well. Just as you in your better, holier moments acknowledge my life is not my own. I am bought with a price by someone else. Just as you try your best to believe and submit to the fact that God really is the one who holds your destiny in faithful fingers. My friend, what you know to be true of you, you must extend to your children as well. In this sense, they are not yours. They never were. They were never blocks of wood for you to move around believing you were giving them the best chance possible. They are divine image bearers, beloved from all eternity by their maker and their redeemer. And I want you to try to believe this morning that no matter where they wander in the wide, wide world, no matter what mistakes they make and they will, no matter how avoidable or tragic the pickles they find themselves in. They may be lost to you, but they are not lost to their maker. The solution to being a lawnmower parent does not involve getting more efficient at cutting the grass, but to realize rather that no matter how deep the weeds your kids get into, the beautiful thing is children in the weeds are always visible from above. It is not your job to ensure your children's destiny. It never was. And it's beyond your power because they're not really yours. Your first, yes, do all the good you can for your kids, but the first most important thing is to recognize that fact. It's the first job of a parent. These aren't my kids. What do you say then? Is parenting useless? Is, it, is there nothing we should do? Should I just return to the pre-Edwardian view of children and let Darwin take over and those who survive do and those who don't can be replaced? Is that what we're left to? No, my friends, it's not as bad as that. You do have a part to play. And it's actually a role you cannot help but play. You will do it regardless of your intent, regardless of your desire. What you will do, whether you like it or not, whether you want to or not, you will model a particular kind of humanity before your children's eyes. 
you will demonstrate to them what it means to be human. God's human or some other kind. For your children will see you be godly or perverse, just or wicked, fair or corrupt. They will hear you pray or curse. They will witness in your times of trouble you either learning virtue or embracing vice. They will watch you worship your God or they will watch you worship something else. And they will draw conclusions from that. Remember, you don't get to pick the conclusions they draw. You just don't. You get to pick what sort of model you're going to be. They will then make choices based on that for which they will be responsible before their God. So live the kind of life you want your kids to see. In the end, it's all you can do. And thankfully, I believe it's all that's actually required of us. It's up to them and to the God who knows and loves them better than you do. If you don't think you can trust your kids, trust God, whose kids they really are. I know, this is an act of faith I'm asking of you. I'm asking you to embrace the truth that God can meet your kids in the dark and wayward places of their wanderings just as easily and perhaps more effectively than in the safety of our mowed lanes and manicured lawns. I'd like you to remember this morning that we worship a God who is very adept at finding lost sheep lost coins, and yes, lost 